Thanks for joining the Capital Church podcast channel. For more resources and to learn more about Capital Church, please visit our website at capitalchurch.co or send us an email at info at capitalchurch.co. Jesus, Paul, a little bit about Paul and uh, their thoughts on depression. And so I talked about this last week. I've actually never addressed depression before. I know we've some of us have gone through depression. Some of us know of people that are going through depression. So uh, I hope this benefits all of us. And so I'm just going to spend a few moments on uh, this subject. And then I want to talk about, at the end, prayer and how prayer relates to depression. Now, this is a big subject. We can probably turn this into a sermon series, uh, which we might later down the road. But I, I really want to address um, the, the effects of depression on our life and, and how God can uh, set us free. Amen? All right, if you brought your Bibles, turn to Matthew 26. We're just going to read 10 verses. And then I'll read a few other chunks of passages out of uh, 2 Corinthians, and then we'll pray. Verse 36, if you don't have your Bible, we'll have uh, the text up behind me, I believe. There we go. Verse 36 says, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. So Jesus goes to the local olive garden. Okay, bad joke. It's a garden of Gethsemane. Yeah, bad. And uh, taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Can't imagine experiencing something like this. Jesus, who has the most joy you you could ever um, experience, is in front of uh, the disciples unraveling before their eyes. Verse 38 And then he said to them, Jesus, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and he prayed, my father, everyone say my father. If this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Verse 43, and again he came and he found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. Verse 44, so leaving them again, he went away and he prayed for the third time, saying the same words, the same words, everyone say the same words, the same words again. And then we close this uh, passage out in verse 45 and verse 46. And and then he came to the disciples and he said to them, sleep, take your rest. Later on, see the hours at hand and the Son of Man is betrayed in the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Quickly, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 8. Paul is kind of taking us through an autobiographical journey. Uh, He had recent, probably about 18 months prior to this letter, he wrote to the church in Corinth, which he founded. We'll talk a little bit about that. It seems like Paul has been wrestling within that 18-month period between the first letter that he wrote to the church and then this letter, he's been wrestling with with some stuff. And so, anyone wrestling with some stuff right now, maybe? You're going through some stuff. Verse 8, this is where um, he lets, lets the church know what he's been struggling with. And this is what he writes. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Verse 9, indeed, we felt we had received the sentence 
of death. Does that, man, that, if you've ever been depressed, that feels like depression, right? But that was to make us rely not on ourselves. Here's the benefit of hindsight. How many of you love hindsight? He's looking back on this horrific time in his life. And he says, this moment, this experience stripped me of self-reliance. I no longer relied on myself, but on God who raises the dead. Verse 10, he delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope. On him, on Jesus. Not a technique, not, not hot yoga, goat yoga. Those are great things. If that's your thing, that's great. But we set our hope on King Jesus, right? That he will deliver us again. He closes out this thought, and he kind of gives us a window into his um, praxis or his practice, his modus vivendi. And he says in verse 11, you must also help us by prayer. How many of you believe in prayer? So that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. We're going to fast forward just a few chapters. We'll go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show us that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. He's returning now to this theme of tragedy and trauma that he has been experiencing over the last 18 months. Verse 8, he says, we were afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed. Have you ever, I want you to feel this. Have you ever felt befuddlement, right? But not driven to despair. Have you ever had brain fog? If you're not a parent and you become a parent, you will experience brain fog, right? Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Verse 10, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Final two verses, verse 11, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. And everyone said amen. All right, turn your neighbor, give him a high five, and then bow your heads and close your eyes as we pray. Father, I thank you for all those high fives. Man, that sounded good, Lord. But we thank you for your grace. Lord, we thank you that you are um, you're here right now. Lord, I know there are a lot of people that are going through a lot of different circumstances. We just thank you that this word today would come and bring hope, bring life uh, to every son and daughter in this room. Lord, I thank you for your strength. Lord, I thank you for clarity. And uh, Lord, as we deal with a very sensitive subject, Lord, I thank you that you would give me your wisdom in Jesus' name. Lord, we just bless everyone, everyone in this room. And everyone said, amen. So depression. Depression is the world's, every clinical psychologist will tell you, is the world's number one public health problem. It's global. It's pandemic. In fact, um, Clinical um, philosophers, psychologists will tell you that depression is now considered the common cold of psychiatric disturbances. And how many of you hate the cold, right? The common cold, got to get rid of it. But it's so uh, a part of the fabric of our life. People are experiencing um, the effects of depression in their life. In fact, this is kind of some older um, data. I think it was probably around 2011 or 2012. This certainly could have increased or um, decreased, but over 200, there were over 253 million prescriptions written for um, antidepressants in the, in the U.S. 
So before I move uh, forward in this talk, I want to make it very clear that if you're taking medicine because of maybe chemical imbalance, um, this is not a place where we'll bring judgment to you. Uh, We believe in doctors. um, We believe in Jesus, right? And so um, I know some people experience very traumatic um, issues when it comes to their physiology. So I want you to hear my heart that um, in no way am I downplaying um, what some people have um, experienced in their life when it comes to diminished dopamine and et cetera in their lives. Um, but what we have found, not what we, um, what scholars have found is that genetic influence um, or influencers um, account for about 16% of depression. So there are some people that uh, when they're born are genetically predisposed to um, some genetic issues, and we'll talk more about this over the next few weeks. Um, that's why we believe in healing. Can I get an amen? And we believe you need to maintain a good relationship with your doctor. Can I get an amen to that? Uh, For many, though, um, life, everyone say life. You love it and you hate it, right? All at the same time. Can can we talk like that in church? For many, life influences um, appear to be uh, the most important cause when it comes to depression. It's... um, the causal link. We'll talk. There's a causal link uh, with life and circumstances and difficulties that we go through, and some de- forms of depression that we experience. Again, there's a vast spectrum when it comes to the depression. Some experience really severe forms. Some more low grade. Um, but it does seem like life can be a, a, a trigger. Um, for example, um, some of you um, you know f- failure. You've experienced failure at work. You've experienced failure. Uh, maybe in a dream, uh, uh, with a dream. Uh, some of you experienced or maybe in the throes of a health crisis. Some of you experienced personal rejection, betrayal for someone uh, that you love, and it's been absolutely devastating. In fact, we have um, uh, a new science of disappointment, which should be for every Cowboy fan. Can I get an amen? Should we do brain scans on uh, Cowboy fans? I mean, I'm sure our dopamine levels are really low. Not trying to make fun of that or downplay that, but Cowboy fans. Anyways, um, I'm digging myself in a hole. Um, The feeling, when it comes to the science of disappointment, the feeling of being let down. Be honest with me, right? It really hurts. Isn't it funny? I'm okay with saying, oh, man, I have a toothache that hurts. But it's really because it's, it's so a part of our psychological makeup it's harder to confess, oh, man, your words hurt me, right? Emotional, psychological pain, it hurts, especially the feeling of being let down. Uh, how many of you love winning? Love, okay, five of you. Um, I'm going to be honest, I love winning, right? Go Warriors. Um, my, my sons uh, and Andrew uh, and some of you, I, Easton, some of you are on, we're all on the same flag football team. Uh, this Friday we won. We won 35 to 7. I can't lie. I felt, I felt glory. I felt God's presence. I don't know what it was. I felt something, right? It's like I just wanted to, like, let's go party. Like, let's go crazy. Well, Dad, we're just too young. It doesn't matter. We're going to go till 2 o'clock tonight, right? Um, I love winning. And come on, winning feels, it feels good. I like the satisfaction of winning but what I have found, and this is just personal for me, and kind of the science of disappointment kind of um, confirms this, um, a loss, especially when you expected to win, hurts more than willing, winning feels good. Why is that? Well, again, back to the science of disappointment, um, our, it, 
when we're disappointed, when we're let down because we have expectations in the future that something's going to happen, uh, and when that doesn't happen, there's a physiological event that takes place in your body, and it's associated with um, a dramatic reduction of, of your dopamine levels. All that to say, it, when we're let down, when we're disappointed, we feel it deeply. Some of you are feeling it today, right now. Some of you are still feeling trauma from 15, 20 years ago, and you're like, why can't I stink and shake my past, right? Some of you even today, maybe you're thinking, what's wrong with me? You showed up today, and you're like, everyone's singing some happy songs, but why do I feel so wrong? And I believe what the, the words say, and I wish I could lift my hands and rejoice like everybody else, but I just feel like there's something wrong with me. Others, maybe you, you've, you've talked yourself into, maybe this is your self-talk, you've talked yourself into this idea that you're fated to be unhappy, like your entire life. Like, I don't like happy talk, because it's so subjective. Maybe we should say, um, maybe you've just worked from an assumption that for you, the joy that Jesus offers everyone is not for you. It's elusive. Uh, the good news is, is that Jesus comes to give us life, what, and life more abundantly, and we can experience that. But there are some people that just, they, they don't believe, which is totally fine, because I've been there before. They don't believe that God can really set them free from their emotional disorder, their emotional wreckage. In fact, um, I've experienced this, so I can say this with confidence. I know I've talked to Many people over the last 22 years of being in ministry, and I've heard this said so many times, there is this idea when people are depressed, um, and I get it, and I can relate to it, that, um, that there's this belief, I'll say it this way, there's a belief that uh, you're the only person in human history um, that is beyond hope. Depression works from a stubborn belief. Without, it goes against all rhyme and reason. It goes against what you know to be true, but just deep down fundamentally, because you've been in depression or in this upside down emotional world so long, you don't believe that you can really be free. Good news is God can set you free. I believe that. I don't want this to be glib Sunday. So I'm not going to like go Pentecostal on you, and I can go Pentecostal on you. Because I know some people are really hurting, and I, I, I don't want you to think, I'm just going to get up and say, you can make it when you feel like you can't. I believe you can, but at least I want you to hear my heart um, this morning when it comes to this very sensitive issue. Um, depression can work from, if we kind of deconstruct the, uh, the anatomy of depression, can work from a lot of different thoughts, and I'm going to go through this really quick. Um, some of you, you just don't think um, you're smart enough. Some of you just, um, we've all thought this maybe, um, but depressed people constantly rehearse this. This is like on their playlist, and it's on repeat. It goes over and over and over in their head. They don't think they're smart enough, successful enough, attractive enough, talented enough. They wish they were taller. They wish they were a baller. They wish they were 6'7". They ran a 4'2", 40, whatever, right? They just feel like, okay, I just, I'm inadequate, woefully inadequate when it comes to life. Now, again, I know some people struggle with chemical imbalance, and Jesus can heal them. Again, medicine can be important in that issue, but... When it comes to depression, it is associated with some of these thoughts. So what is de depression? Uh, many people assume that it's an emotional problem. We've talked about this for the last um, 10 weeks or so. Uh, 
it, it's not um, first. It, it does affect our emotions. Uh, we feel emotions. Can I just say this really quick? There's nothing, God has designed you to feel things. Can I get an amen to that? We're supposed to feel. Like if we didn't feel anything, let's just, man, let's give it up, right? Let's eat, drink, and, and tomorrow we all die. God has designed us to feel joy and peace and hope and goodness and his love and feelings are designed to motivate us into um, action, right? However, feelings can um, lie to us. And we've talked about this often. But depression first is not just an emotional problem. It's a pattern of beliefs. It kind of works. It's driven by um, what some clinical psychologists will call schemas. Uh, one author defines depression as being formed around, in his words, a cognitive triad of three thoughts. So there are three aspects connected to depression. Number one, when you're depressed, you will find this thought, I'm no good, right? And there are many different iterations. You might not think I'm no good, but you, you, you kind of play that, right? You might say something else, but it's connected to I'm no good. The second aspect of depression, again, where you find depression, you will find this thought. Um, my world is bleak right? Like birds' heads are falling off. Dumb and dumber. There you go, right? The world is spiraling out of control. I've come to my end, right? The world is bleak. Uh, the final uh, or the third aspect of depression is my future is hopeless. My future is hopeless. Well, the, the thing when it comes to following Jesus, you, as you develop your understanding of, of Scripture, and the nature of how God works in our life, you begin to realize that you are not a shadow of your former self, but you are a shadow of your future self. In other words, um, uh, we have a hopeful eschatology. That's fancy talk for God has a plan for you, and he's working us, and he's defining us and our lives, not on the basis of our present, but on the basis of his future for us. Depression fundamentally is anti-hope. It's anti-God. It's anti-hope. You have no future. You're not going anywhere. And this is where people start falling off the cliff. When they feel like they have no hope. Like you can work. It, it sucks. But you can work from a place I'm no good. You can think, oh, my world is bleak. But if you get to the point where you think you have no hope, that is a dangerous place. To be. We are neurologic, neurobiologically wired to hope. We're hopers. Turn to your neighbor and say, I'm a hoper. Now, some of you might not feel that, right, um, today. Um, this triad of depression, though, um, leads to a lot of what Pastor Ken, um, if you've, how many of you have been here for uh, over 25 years? Wow, okay, about five of you, no, a little bit more. Pastor Ken, growing up in church, he would always talk about stinking thinking. This is schemas, right? Remember this, Ellen? Stinking thinking. That was, I loved it. Um, the, the fancy talk for this is pathological thinking. Pathological thinking or stinking thinking um, kind of forms um, the uh, structure of depression. And I want just to talk about, just for the next few minutes, some of the ways in which we think in stinking ways. Or pathological ways. Let me just say this really quick. Romans chapter 12, 1 through 2 should be really encouraging. 
Paul says we're not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. So, um, how do I say this without being glib? I'm just going to say, you can, even though it doesn't feel like you can, because you've been in maybe in depression for a long time. But God has designed your brain, according to many different neuropsychologists, to renew itself. This is encouraging. This might not be encouraging for you, but this is encouraging for me. Thought in the, in the burgeoning world of neuropsychology has transformative power over matter. Like the physical substrate of your brain can change simply by thinking. Now, I'm not going to try to psychoanalyze us. Maybe I will. But um, the, the, this idea behind this idea is neuroplasticity, right? Neuroplasticity simply means your brain is malleable. It's capable of change. It can, in the words of one scholar, reorganize itself. So God has designed your brain to renew itself and to reorganize itself. The problem with neuroplasticity, it works both ways. It can lead in positive directions and it can lead in negative directions. The more you think about something, the more you give attention to something, right? The more your brain begins to form around, like it starts to fire, like synapses wire then together and it actually, it creates a, a physical change in your brain no matter what you um, think on, right? Just to clear that up, what you think about changes the physical structure or the circuitry of your brain. So the good news is, is that we can be renewed in our mind as we come under the Holy Spirit, as we come under scripture, and as we come under prayer, which I'm going to talk about in 10-15 minutes. Are you guys still with me? Okay, so what are the ways in which we think like bad? Number one, um, and this might be not for all of us, but maybe for some of us. Number one, there are some of us in here today, we have this all or nothing um, way of thinking about the world. Um, and I get this list from a lot of different scholars and theologians and um, clinical psychologists. So all or not, nothing thinking works like this. Um, when I was 12 years old, I was a sprinter, and I loved running. And I remember uh, I, fifth grade, so I would have been 10. So in fifth grade, I hadn't lost a race. And I was told, Shane was my best friend. He was telling me about a kid named Bobby. Everyone say Bobby. Bobby at that time was the fastest kid in the city. I hadn't lost a race, and um, we were, there was a race that was right around the corner at Cole, and uh, I was going to run against him. So I was really excited, you know, I'm like, this, this could be really fun. So I remember um, the gun goes off, Bobby's to my left, and out of the gates I trip and fall and stumble. Bobby ends up winning. I take second place. And uh, I remember thinking post hoc after that race, I told myself, I've never lost a race before in my life. But I kept on, for that, that following week, I kept on telling myself, because my entire identity was wrapped around winning, that I was a total failure because I lost one race. That's how all or nothing thinking works. The good news is I beat Bobby in the city a couple weeks later, and I was considered the fastest kid in the city. All right, let's move on. Um, all or nothing thinking um, is it works kind of with um, this fear of imperfection, right? Uh, if you're not perfect, you're an absolute failure. In fact, all or nothing thinking works in um, or deals with or in absolutes. According to one um, psychologist, no one, and I agree with this, no one is uh, absolutely brilliant or stupid. Can I get an amen? 
So stop talking to the Democrats in that way. And stop talking about the Republicans in that way, right? That's just my cultural thought, okay? No one is absolutely brilliant or absolutely stupid. No one is absolutely beautiful except my wife. She's absolutely, she has not one flaw. Can I get an amen? But for the rest of us, no one is absolutely beautiful or absolutely ugly. Now, we believe there are absolutes. That's God. Uh, his love, his truth, his relationship with this world. Like, he is the absolute. But when it comes to us, there are no absolutes. And yet, when we have this all or nothing thinking, we're assuming that I have to be absolutely perfect or I'm a total failure. Uh, some of us, we work from, and this is the second um, kind of uh, pathological uh, way of thinking, we magnify issues. So what we do is we see the worst possible outcome as most likely, and we obsess over it, right? So this happened in my life, um, this one incident, that means um, that it's going to continue to happen, and then we start projecting in our future that this traumatic experience that I have in my life will determine um, uh, the rest of my life, and we start to think in worst-case scenarios. So that is to magnify thoughts. For example, the Cowboys lost, therefore they will never, ever go to the Super Bowl over the last 25 years. That's a bad example. They haven't, all right? Let's move on. Number three, um, overgeneralization. Overgeneralization. Some of us, we just, we exaggerate. We assign global, in the words of one scholar, global, a global pattern of negatives based on one event, uh, we do this often with ourselves and with other people. Uh, number four, this is really personal. We all have experienced rejection, right, in some way or another. Um, one scholar gives a hypothetical example of how rejection affects us and how it can turn into exaggerating what's going on. Um, for example, one um, problem could be a, a young man. He loves God, wants to date some girl ask this particular girl out. She says no. She doesn't really give a reason why, right? And uh, the guy then, um, because he feels rejection deeply, um, begins to work from this idea or this belief that um, all women that must have identical taste and that he will be rejected by every eligible woman on the face of the earth based on this one painful rejection. Some people allow their minds to spiral out of control like that because of rejection. We can call this scorched earth um, idea. We can call this face of the earth, no one, because this one person rejected me, then everyone um, will reject me. Uh, some, some of us struggle with this. Uh, number five, you guys still with me? Number five, uh, emotional reasoning. This is where our culture is at. If it feels right, then it must be right. The problem is um, it works the other way, too. If I feel bad, I must be bad. If I feel ugly, if I feel this, if I feel this, then I must be that. It's kind of pop psychology. We've talked about this a lot. Um, but the most important thing when it comes to our lives is not our feels, right? We don't always trust how we feel. We always trust God's truth. God's truth over our lives is the dominant feature for us. Um, number six, again, let me just go through this really quick. Negative filter. Some of us obsess. Do we have any obsessive people here? Okay, a few of you. Uh, we obsess over negative details of our life. This is kind of my tendency, just to be really honest, honest with you. And we screen out all the good things that God has done for us. 
So we got one negative thing that just, oh, right? We think about over and over and over. If we're not careful, we start to screen out and filter all the good things that God has done for us. Uh, others, they jump to conclusion. They believe that they're mind readers. For some of you, um, maybe today I could look out and you're yawning and you're sleeping. I, I have a choice to make. I could say, uh, you don't like my preaching. Or I could say, maybe they were really tired, they have a lot of kids, and they were up all night, right? Jumping to conclusions, right? I don't know your story, right? So as a, as a young preacher, I had to really, because I can see what everybody's doing, just so you know. That's just a clue, all right? Um, I used to, like, overreact to, like, what people were doing, but I had to learn that I can't jump to conclusions, Right? Uh, we all have different things that we're going through. But a lot of people experience this um, jumping to conclusion, and it helps form or harden um, depression in their lives. So what do we do about this? How do we overcome depression? How do we? Well, first, I, I do want to deal with the stigma of depression. Many people think that, hey, if I follow Jesus, I'll never experience depression. The facts, though, when we come to Scripture, kind of lead us in the opposite conclusion. We come to Elijah, he was depressed. Now, yeah, he made some bad decisions, but he was depressed, yet God fed him and took care of him. Hannah was depressed. You can find this in John Mark Comer's book. He talks about a lot of different profiles of depression. But Hannah was depressed, um, and yet God answered her prayer. Here we come to Paul. Paul. In our, our text today, we read Paul um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Something has happened in between writing 1 Corinthians and writing 2 Corinthians. Every scholar will tell you his style is different. In fact, in Paul's first letter, he's a pastor. He's addressing the church, all their problems. I mean, their problems were crazy. It's equivalent to like, the church folk are going to Vegas, they're doing cocaine, they're just, they're whatever, right? People are just going bananas and nuts and crazy. Paul is writing a letter. This is the church that he founded, right? So he has to deal with an incestual relationship, sexual disorder. He has to deal with a lot of different church issues, disordered worship, people doing crazy things. And yet in this letter, uh, the first letter, he's cheerful. In the words of N.T. Wright, he's upbeat, he teases, he challenges, he's brilliant, he has a beautiful flow of thought. We now come to uh, 2 Corinthians in the second letter. Paul seems to be in the throes, or at least coming out of the throes of depression. If you read the Greek sentence structure, he sounds exhausted. His phraseology is all kind of twisted up. It's scripture. I love it. It's the inspired word of God. Can I get an amen? But Paul is coming out of a very deep depression. The language that he uses is evocative. Right? It felt like the sentence of death. Felt like the sentence of death was inside of me. Seems like in about this 18-month period between the writing of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, a perfect storm of life. Everyone say life. How many of you know life happens, right? Perfect storm of life uh, hit Paul. It was, a, it was a perfect storm of suffering, personal rejection, persecution. 
that happened with such depth that Paul entered into what he called a death sentence. He was in the sunken place, and he didn't know how to get out. Right? There's no staircase that was leading out of his pit of despair and rejection. This perfect storm of rejection and, and persecution and suffering probably revolved around uh, the church of Corinth. We know that in between the writing of the first letter and the second letter, he probably wrote another letter. He probably went back to uh, the church and he experienced rejection by the church of Corinth. This is the church that he founded. He loved, he wept with them, he did life with them, he tabled with them. He announced that Jesus was king over them. He was by their bedside. Paul is the consummate pastor. And yet he was told that if he was to come back, he would need letters of recommendation. Imagine how devastating that would be. Have you ever experienced personal rejection before like that? Someone in your life that you trusted then turns on you. That personal rejection probably combined um, with persecution. He was in Ephesus probably for a good maybe uh, 15 to 16 months. He was in prison. Mobs were after him. Persecuted by the local population, by different people, thrown into jail. He's in jail. Jails in the ancient world were a place and they were designed for suffering. So you had no companionship. You weren't fed by anything or by anyone. Uh, you would experience deprivation uh, on the level that we would never experience in our lives. So the combination of being personally rejected by those that he loved and gave his life to and being persecuted by the powers, right, in Ephesus, being thrown into jail, and then sitting in jail, starving, maybe sick, probably thinking to himself, hey, God, at Philippi, Silas and I, we just sang some songs, and there was an earthquake, and we got out of jail. I've been singing a long time, God. Where are you? I'm still here. Paul was a powerful man. Like for a while in Ephesus, he was, in the words of one scholar, a blaze of glory. Right? People are experiencing remarkable healing. Paul was so powerful, it seems like this was an extraordinary, extraordinary event for Paul. But even his handkerchief was filled with healing power that people were getting healed simply by touching it. Magicians are coming out of the woodwork and burning their books and they're committing their lives to Jesus and then all of a sudden everything goes downhill. So, in this prolonged death sentence, right, in the sunken place, he was unable to get out. How did Paul reframe his thinking? How did God get him out of his depression? Because Paul makes it very clear he felt like he was crushed completely. He really did feel like he was abandoned. Paul wasn't just using heroic words in 1 Corinthians 4 saying, oh yeah, I was abandoned, I was destroyed, wink, wink, right? Paul is not a hero, right? He's not like Greek mythology, he's like what Achilles or, or uh, Hercules or Prometheus. No, Paul really felt like he was abandoned and destroyed and he felt that sentence of death. But, thank God for the benefit of hindsight, he looks back and says he wasn't after all. Can I just say, maybe for some of you, you need to hear this message today. Maybe you've tried and tried and tried and tried to get out of your depression. I want to encourage you that God has not abandoned you. So the question is, how did Paul get out of it, right? 
Was it his positivity? Paul wasn't like, he was a faith guy, but he wasn't a positive guy, right? Was it his gritting, you know, he just grit his teeth and he just, you know, got through it? I don't think so. Was it a technique, a breathing exercise? Important, awesome. I don't think it was. I think we have the answer in verse 11. Verse 11 in 1 Corinthians chapter, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says, I want you to continue to pray for me. It seems like prayer, sustained prayer, not quick fix prayer, but sustained prayer for a long time. We don't like to talk like this. Prayer without ceasing created a new depth in Paul that enabled him to handle a new depth of persecution and rejection. It was sustained, long prayer in the cold. Sometimes I'm sure he didn't even have the words. I'm sure some, sometimes Paul was so dehydrated he couldn't even speak what he was feeling. But it was his prayer that sustained Paul. Prayer? Like when we, prayer. Now I believe in medicine. Can I get an amen? amen. I do believe Jesus can can heal us in a moment. It's funny, my, uh, my wife has shared her testimony before, but before she was saved, she was a really bad person. Um, but no, she, she really struggled with depression. She shared this before. And uh, in a moment when she gave her life to Jesus, God rest to set her free. Her mind was clear. It's amazing. And we hear stories of like that all the time where God will rescue you in one moment and you don't feel the effects of depression. I love those stories. That wasn't my story in my life. I struggled with depression. I'll share this in, a, in about five or ten minutes. But it wasn't a quick fix. God had to take me through some of the patterns of thinking that was causing me to spiral out of control. And my story wasn't a quick rescue. It was a long rescue where um, I had to remain faithful to God and his grace. And it's through sustained, long prayer where God got a hold of my mind, and changed my life right side up. So it's funny, when it comes to prayer, we, we, um, we're confused, we feel awkward about prayer. Some of us, we don't like to pray. Some of us, we, we even wonder if God likes us when we pray, right? Some of us just feel uh, just absolutely weird when we pray, um, but what's interesting, and I get this from Don, John Tyson, and I've, I'm going to borrow some of his um, content here, but he, uh, he quotes a lot of research when it comes to prayer. Everyone say prayer. Prayer is really beneficial when it comes to people who are high risk for depression. In fact, those who pray regularly have a thicker cerebral cortex, which is associated with less depression and less anxiety. Prayer, it seems like we're designed for prayer, right? But prayer is a problem for all of us. And this is where I borrow um, three aspects or three anxieties that John Tyson tells us uh, related to prayer. The first aspect of prayer, the reason why we don't pray, is because of outcome anxiety. Outcome anxiety is simply um, revolves around this idea of does prayer work, right? When I pray, is it going to work? Like, should we even pray? We got medicine, we got technology, we got Netflix, we got, we just got so much in this world. Do we really need to pray? 
Like, should we just, should we pray or go to the ER, right? Most of us will go to the ER and then pray afterwards, right? Or, again, if you need to go to the ER, go to the ER. But it, it, it tells us the, the, the ethos or the zeitgeist that we live in, in a modern contemporary life. We, we value science above everything else. So prayer is something conf- confusing for all of us. And, and maybe in a more fundamental way, Outcome uh, anxiety is connected to maybe we have asked God for something and God didn't answer. At least we thought he didn't answer. C.S. Lewis makes a stunning claim about prayer. He says prayer is unlimited by space and time. In fact, it's so powerful that God has to exercise discretionary power over prayer. Because every time we pray, God listens, right? It's the most powerful, and paraphrasing C.S. Lewis, prayer is the most powerful cosmic thing in the universe outside of God himself. So the question is, why does prayer not work? Well, I think prayer always works. God just uses discretionary power and always answers, and sometimes the answer is no. I mean, there are deep issues that we go through, but thank God you didn't marry that person that you asked God to marry in eighth grade, right? Because that would have been a disaster. There are some prayers we pray that God um, will answer with a no. But God is always there, and he always brings good things to us. And everyone said amen to that. So outcome prayer. We're always, in the words of John Tyson, we're always talking about God, but we're not talking to him. Right, we feel weird. Uh, I've talked about this a lot. Genesis one, two, and three. Isn't it funny that uh, Eve and the serpent? What are they doing? They're objectifying God. What are they doing? They're not talking to God. They're just simply talking about God. That's when theology gets weird. That's when churches get weird. That's when people get weird when they never actually make a decision to talk to God. They just talk about Him. Right. So that kind of begins to twist people out of shape, and that's one of the problems when it comes to praying. Another problem is motive anxiety. Um, Some people don't think they're good at prayer. Some people, they want to like uh, disguise who they really are when it comes to to prayer. Um, We think in prayer, we have to be vulnerable, and you're right, you have to be vulnerable when it comes to prayer. And we feel like we got to fix our lives before we actually enter into a a prayerful relationship with God. Um, that never works. You can never fix your life. God wants to fix your life, your thinking, your motives, your anger. He wants to heal your rage. He wants to heal your lust. But the mode of anxiety, well, is God going to like me? Ugh, right? Is he, what is he going to do when I come to prayer and start to admit who I really am? Some people can't handle who they really are. Some people come in and they experience, when they come to church, they experience bizarre thoughts, they experience um, interesting things in their life. All these things jump up in their, is there music going? Yes, beautiful. I didn't know if I just somehow stepped into another world. I was like, am I still here? I'm in heaven, right? That was beautiful, that was beautiful. But mode of anxiety, right? We don't, we're not good at it, and we're scared about what God's going to think about us. Motive anxiety. The last one is God anxiety. 
Like I love this thought, John Tyson, he, he mentions it. Like some of us were like in prayer, we're like, hello God, I haven't talked to you in about 10 years. Um, I hope you don't kill me, right? Like I've heard you hate people, right? Don't hurt me, but I need help. Again, it's, it's God anxiety. We're not quite sure where we stand with God. In fact, your vision of God will determine um, the level of honesty that you'll have with God. If you believe that God is good, if you believe he's your father, like we talked about last week, that will set you free to be absolutely who you are in the presence of God. C.S. Lewis says this, uh, when it comes to prayer, you cannot lay before God what you ought to be. You gotta lay before God who you really are. God, I'm this, this sucks. I have a lot of rage, Meridian, yeah, traffic. Uh, that guy in that Hyundai, uh, I'm gonna hurt him. God, right, help me, I'm a pastor. Like, I'm speaking for other pastors. Other pastors have that problem. Right, we go, we're, 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 we're scared to truly be ourselves. The good news, Psalm 139 says, God knows you through and through. Through and through. There's nothing hidden, nothing hidden. Nothing, 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 nothing. You go to the depths of Sheol, God is there. God is there. So, how do we pray? Are you ready for this? How do we pray? Well, the answer is found in Matthew chapter 26. Jesus is standing in for God's people. Can't get into it, we're almost done. And he's experiencing a panic attack in, words of, in, in the words of one scholar. And he's experiencing the depth of human emotion, right? He's going through this process of taking on the cup. He says in one prayer, there are too many prayers that he, that he lets out. One of the prayers is, God, let this cup pass before me. What is that? Well, we find the cup in Isaiah 51. It's simply a metaphor, image of God's justice over human evil. So the cup was destined for those people who would not listen to God. So essentially what God would do is he would create this chalice, right? Put it with a lot of mixed alcohol, and then he would force this mixed alcohol drink down uh, the throats of his people and give them what they wanted. That's what they wanted. And then they would stumble to their destruction. What Jesus is experiencing here is this cup. He is standing in for us. Can you give me a man to that? Just so you know, what it means to be human is we want what's destructive. <laughs> and yet Jesus is standing in our place taking God's justice, dealing with sin, and a lot of different things going on we can't talk about. But Jesus experiences panic, raw emotion, right? He's fully God, but he's still fully human. Jesus is not a demagogue. He's not half human. He's fully human, taking on the full spectrum of panic and fear and despair and hopelessness. Jesus is so stunned by it, he had been predicting for, for days that he was gonna go to the cross. He knew he was going to die, but in this moment, he's so stunned by the reality and the terror of death, he falls on his face. Could you imagine someone who is defined by joy, who is the, the stability of the world of space and time and matter? Right, the, the one you put your trust in, never had a bad day, in front of your eyes. If you're Peter, James, and John, and you see him, like on the ground, pouring out his heart, I think would be a, 
a disturbing event. And yet Jesus is taking on the wrath of God, the justice of God in his body. How did he get the courage? Because there's a shift and within one hour. He goes from his first prayer to his second prayer. God, Father, take this cup from me. I don't want it. Take it, please. Please take it. Please do something else, right? It's kind of the prayer that Jesus prays. And then after an hour, Jesus comes back after praying. And what does he say? God, I, I still don't want this cup, but I'm going to take it. What happened? Well, it seems like that God, his Father, the Father of Jesus, gave him the strength as he prayed, not his own words, he prayed the Psalms. So one practice this week and one way that I've experienced to overcome despair and fear and hopelessness is, for me, you don't have to do this, but in my life, I have prayed the Psalms and it has set me free from hopelessness and despair. So Jesus, the first thing he prays, the first prayer he goes, basically he says, my soul is sorrowful. What is he doing? He's praying Psalm 42. Verse nine, if you go to verse nine, this is what the poet says. This is like dark poetry. This is the inspired word of God. This is a poet who's depressed and this is what he says. I say to my God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Verse 10, as with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Verse 11, why are you cast down? Look at the arc of this poem. Jesus begins by quoting this. The poet begins with de describing what he's feeling. He engages in self-talk, and then he ends with verse 11. Why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Jesus was at the point where he didn't have any words left. So what did he do? Have you ever been to that point before? I don't have any words. I've been there before. I know many of us have been there before. What do you do when you don't have any words? Pray the Psalms. Pray the story of these, these poets who describe their feelings, but those feelings as they're described and as the poets self-talk, right, always turn into hope and joy and the promise of deliverance. This is what I would like us to do this week. I would like us to pray the Psalms. Don't pray just your words, but pray the Psalms. I, I did this when I was uh, 20, 21, 22. I was going through a, a, a lot of depression. My whole life, I, man, I was filled with joy. Um, I played basketball my whole life. And then at the age of 19, God called me into the ministry. And I had no idea what I was supposed to do. And so for three years, I really wrestled with inadequacy and fear and worry. And I remember at one point I went to a camp and all the campers were um, at a service. I was in my room. I took out Psalm 119 and I, simp I just, for an hour, I just read Psalm 119. Verse 25 says, my soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. I didn't have the words to describe what I was feeling. But for some reason, Psalm 119 did. And I remember this, I'm like, my soul, that feels like where I'm at, God. I don't know, and I don't know how to describe what I'm feeling, but it feels like that. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. And I remember in that moment, for an hour, 
praying through Psalm 119. I wasn't totally set free, but I was given a staircase out of my depression. I didn't have a quick fix. Some of you might have a quick fix this week where God will dramatically rescue you, and I believe that can happen. But in my own personal experience, I just was committed to reading and praying through the Psalms, and it was by praying and reading through the Psalms at a sustained length that God set me free from depression. So pray the Psalms. How do we pray? Pray not your words. Pray the words of the Psalms. Second thing, and I get this from John Tyson, um, pray what you have. Pray God's word and then pray what you have. You could do that as you pray God's word. You could say, God, my soul clings to the dust. It sucks. I'm scared. I'm out of my mind. I don't even know what I'm feeling. Pray what you have. Can I get an amen? Be honest with what's going on inside of you. Be okay with all the crazy emotions. God's not intimidated. I know that sounds glib, but God is not intimidated. God knows you more than you know yourself. Even if you feel like you're in the dark, there's no darkness in the perspective of God. Everything is clear in the mind of God. Psalm 139, God knows you inside and out. So pray this week, if you're going through something really difficult, you're experiencing fear, pray not your words, pray first God's words, and then pray what you have. Don't pray what you ought to be. Can I get an amen? Pray what's inside 